Greetings, Initiates, and welcome back for another lesson in the Codex. Today's episode, we're going to finally be diving deep into Assassin's Creed 2. And if you remember in the last episode, we talked all about the present day stuff as well as the key main characters. And now, we're going to break this up into two parts. In this first part, we're going to cover the game up into the you leave to go to Venice. So we're going to cover all of the stuff that happens in Florence and in Forli, as well as San Gimignano and all that good stuff. So for starters, I'll just go ahead and go right into the little quick recap of the game thus far. Basically, uh, you start off as Ezio. He's in the very, very beginning. You, you see him as a baby. You see him being born. But that's kind of irrelevant. You get the real game. St- <laughs> <laughs> the real game takes place uh, when they're when he's roughly around a teenager, so maybe about sixteen years old or so, and he's about to get into this big street brawl with his family enemy, the Pazzi, more specifically Vieri di Pazzi. Uh, it so it turns into an all-out brawl. Ezio has his men, Vieri has his men, and it's just a giant, giant fight. Uh, Ezio obviously comes out on top. And his brother comes by and tells him that, you know, you should go see a doctor because you got a little cut on your face. You got to make sure you're going to be all right. Yada, yada. They go visit the doctor and then they try to head home. Um, And on the way home, Ezio decides to pay a visit to his girlfriend, Christina. So he spends the night there and he wakes up the next morning having to immediately leave her house because her father walks in and gets really, really mad. And then once he gets home, uh, his his father, Giovanni, uh, confronts him about it, jokes with him about it, and then sends him off to run errands for him, as well as helping out his family of um, his mother, his sister, and his younger brother, uh, Petruccio. So after going out, running errands, helping out his family, he comes back and... Um, Giovanni then sends him off to do one last errand of sending these letters to these strange people, you know, throughout the city, as well as collect a message. When he comes back, he finds that his place has been more or less destroyed, with his father nowhere to be found, and his mother and sister are like in a in a somewhat state of shock. Like his mom isn't talking at all, and then he finds out that his uh, his brothers and his, his dad were actually imprisoned. And so Ezio goes to the prison and, you know, finds his dad, tries to talk to him, find out what's going on. But his dad's like, listen, there's no time. I, you know, this was stuff that was going to happen, but I wasn't expecting it to happen this soon. But I need you to go back to the house, find my secret room and take everything that you find in the chest and deliver this letter to... Um, Uberto Alberti. So Ezio goes and does this, and he grabs these robes. Uh, he grabs this weird broken mechanism as well as a, a encoded page, and then he grabs the letter, and then he takes it off, and he delivers the letter. He then goes to the main piazza in Florence to attend his family's hearing and hoping that the letter that he delivered would set them free that doesn't happen instead umberto convicts his father and his brothers of treason and has them hung right there 
Ezio, witnessing this, is in a complete state of rage. He rushes the the stands, basically just shouting vengeance. Like, he wants to get revenge. Obviously, he can't do anything right then and there. He's immediately overwhelmed by the guards, and he's forced to flee. He gains a little bit of training from the headmistress of the courtesans in Florence. He gets the weird mechanism that he found from his father's chest uh, repaired by none other than Leonardo da Vinci. And he finds out that it's a hidden blade. So then he goes and he seeks his revenge. After he successfully kills Umberto, he proclaims to everybody right then and there that the Auditori family is not dead, that he is still standing, he is still alive. And from then on, he flees with his mother and his sister to get out of Florence and stay at their uncle's villa in Monteregioni. Upon arriving at Monteregioni, Ezio is ambushed by Vieri, who has his who has a bunch of uh, Florentine guards, and they are there to kill Ezio. Now, this is the same guy from the beginning at the street fight. Exactly. Yeah. And so, after a brief little tussle, um, Ezio's uncle Mario actually comes in and steps up to help him fight. And then Vieri, being the coward that he is, runs away. So after Ezio and Mario take care of the the guards, uh, Mario then brings them back to the villa and explains that, you know, he, he gives the explanation of how Ezio's father, Giovanni, was actually an assassin, that... He's, he was fighting this conspiracy against Florence and that um, he, Ezio needs to take up his father's work to continue everything so that his father's death and his brother's deaths were not in vain. Ezio at first is pretty reluctant with all of this. He wants to get his family out of Italy, off to Spain to just try to live a normal life. And this kind of sends Mario into a, a bit of a rage after... You know, he spends all this time training Ezio uh, and hoping that he'll end up taking up the fight. And at first, Ezio is kind of confused as to why he's being so mad about the fact that he's not wanting to join. But then uh, his uncle's mercenaries then explain to Ezio that, well, the thing is, is that the Pazzi, Vieri, and uh, his father have actually been terrorizing Mario's you know, mercenaries, and he's been terrorizing all the other towns out in San Gimignano, and that, you know, Mario is actually out there to go and take care of them, to dispatch of them. So that Ezio decides, well, you know what, I'm going to help. And so after thwarting the plans of the Pazzi out in San Gimignano, he finally manages to take out Vieri. And Vieri, even to his last dying breath, is still acting like a pompous prick. And this kind of pisses off Ezio a lot. And he's like shaking his dead body, like shouting all these insults. And that's when Mario steps in. He's like, hey, listen, you know what? Just you are not Vieri. So don't act like him and make sure that you, you send them off properly. You give them their proper rights. Goodbye. And this is where Ezio kind of learns probably the most important lesson in terms of being an assassin and that, you know, even though 
they kill people for the greater good, that doesn't mean that they enjoy doing it. That doesn't mean that they are stooping down to the levels of which their enemies are. But they still treat them with respect and with dignity, even upon death. So after taking care of Vieri, uh, Ezio then spends, he decides to stay in Italy to help out Mario. And he then takes out the rest of the people that are involved in this conspiracy to get rid of his father and everyone else. And that ultimately leads back to uh, Vieri's father uh, and discovers that there's this huge plot to take out the Medici that are currently in charge of Florence. So after successfully thwarting this entire plot, uh, we have another main uh, Pazzi member that manages to flee and tries to seek help of this hooded figure no- known only as the Spaniard, and that is Jacopo de Pazzi. Now, Jacopo is hoping to seek asylum out in Venice with uh, the Spaniard as well as other members of the Templar Order, but this is ultimately denied, and Jacopo is then stabbed by uh, Rodrigo, or I'm sorry, not Rodrigo, is then stabbed by uh, the Spaniard. So Ezio then decides to give Jacopo, you know, the relief of death because he was, Jacopo was left there to die. And at this point, Ezio decides, or now knows that the rest of the people that are responsible for the death of his family are now in Venice and they're seeking to take over Venice. So Ezio then travels to Forli and runs into Caterina Sforza, who is the wife of the Duke of uh, Forley. After helping her out, uh, he gains passage on a boat with uh, Leonardo to go to Venice. And this is where it kind of cuts off. And this is where uh, now Desmond's stepping out of the Animus to brush up on some training exercises. So that's the game in a nutshell. I could have gone into a lot more depth with the game, but I feel like that would have taken up too much time. And again, I don't want this to just be a giant recap episode. So we're going to now shift over from, you know, the whole recap stuff and talk about the key, the key characters that are in this first half of the game. So for starters, we can obviously start with Ezio Auditore. Um, So with Ezio, like I mentioned before, he's a teenager He's just trying to live his best life. You know, he has a noble noble family background because the Auditori family was a banking family during this time in the Renaissance Italy. And then ultimately his entire life gets turned upside down because of this weird conspiracy to uh, get rid of his family because they were assassins and Giovanni was working to uncover this plot to expose the Templars that are pulling these strings and get them arrested and ultimately probably uh, hung for their crimes. Is there anybody in particular that you want to point out right now, Josue? Yeah, I think it's so important to talk about the the father and the brother, even though they're just there briefly, because they are the motivation for this whole first half of the game. And this game is so different from the first one. And you get to have this really personal uh, experience, right? Like you, you see Ezio 
with family and on the street and having fun and cracking jokes and seeing his girlfriend. But you also see his brother stepping in and you see how his father reacts to everything that happened the night before. And it's it's like this great relationship that the three of them, you know, that, well, that uh, the father and the brother have with Ezio. And then, you know, very quickly that is taken away. But I, I think it's amazing that we spend enough time with them to appreciate them and then be really, really pissed when they die. <laughs> Yeah, when as soon as they're hung, even to uh, Giovanni's last breath, he's telling Alberto, you know, after realizing that he was actually, you know, also a conspirator, that you know, oh, you might take my life and my my son's lives today, but we will have yours in return. Like we will have our revenge for this. And then you know, ultimately he's cut off because the gallows, you know, you know, get to him. But yeah, no, Ezio is just absolutely livid like he screams and he's pushing through the crowd running towards uberto before being you know held off by the guards and he's even shouting at him he's like i'll kill you for what you've done and you know like you said even though we only really see uh federico and giovanni for only a brief uh portion of the game like they're the main driving point for everything in this game. And I th- I think their relationship again, although brief, it makes this game special. And I think it's it's a big part of what makes the game stand out from uh the first one and from other games during that time. And I think it set the foundation for a lot of Ubisoft games afterwards, but it's yeah, I don't know. I think they did a really really good job with that. Yeah, no, because I mean, like in the first game, you know, it's just simply an arc of redemption, but there's no real character development in the beginning. Like you're not really connect. You don't really feel connected to a lot of the the characters because you're just kind of thrown into things and then you're sent on this giant redemption story. But in this one, it, it builds into it. It's like, you know, here's your mother. Here's your sister. Here's your brothers. And, you know, look at the life you have right now. And now let's take it all away from you. And now all of a sudden you're on the run or now you have to, you know, seek revenge for the people that were behind the death of your family. Yeah. And the rest of the game and all the other characters we're going to talk about. Uh, a lot of them, it's all about the relationship that Ezio has with them. That is what makes them important. Exactly. And and uh, I think the main point of this game that they were trying to drive home was um, that idea of revenge and family. Because in this one, yeah. it seems like, uh, like, especially with the assassins, I mean, like, it's called the assassin brotherhood, which means that those people that are part of the assassins are, are like family. And even in this case, it's your literal family, and you want to make sure that those that you loved are are avenged if some if they've been wronged. And so I feel like that the, the main themes here are are very they're very right out there. Like it, it's it's very clear, very clearly stated from the beginning that it's really about these two main themes. Yeah. Uh, so kind of switching over from from Ezio and his family, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the actual conspirators in this portion of the game. So we have really the Pazzi family that is also a prominent banking family in uh, this Renaissance Italy era, but they're not as successful as the Auditores. And it, it turns out that uh, Francesco de Pazzi, who is the father of Vieri, 
and the head of the family uh, is actually part of the Italian Templars. By association, obviously, Vieri is also one of them. Uh, his brother, Jacopo uh, de Pazzi, is also part of it. And they have a slew of other people like Uberto and other figures to kind of help pull the strings of, you know, Florence and San Gimignano. And even in out in Forley, too, they have a little bit of influence there. And it's interesting to note just kind of how how villainous they kind of make them seem in this game. Like they in this game, they really portray these characters to be ruthless and brutal and unforgiving or uncaring uh, for the people that are surrounding them. All they care about is the power that they just want to have full control of the city and get rid of the Medici because they feel like the Medici is wronging them and ousting them simply because they don't like them. It, it seems like this game is trying to really make the Templars seem like brutal, ruthless people who care about nothing more than power. That's really what drives the Pazzi family and the conspirators that they have with them. So, like, for Francesco, he's all about wanting to rule Florence because he feels like he's being unjustly treated by the Medici family who are allies with the Auditores because they just, it's just something, it's just who they favor. Especially since Giovanni has been, as an assassin, been working to kind of preserve their power and their influence over Florence. And this is clearly seen when Francesco leads this assault on the Medici's after church service. Like right outside the church, they immediately attack them. And Francesco is taking his dagger and he's stabbing Lorenzo Medici, uh, his brother. I can't remember his brother's name off the top of my head. But he just stabs him brutally to death before going after Lorenzo. Before Ezio's managed to step in and, and save the day. But, you know, even so, like, you, you see with everybody that, like, the Templars themselves are just uncaring, even for their own, because you flash forward to Jacopo, who's trying to seek asylum from the Spaniard, and all he does is stab him and leave him for dead because they failed to take over Florence because of one person, and that was Ezio. Ezio managed to single-handedly thwart all of their efforts to control the countryside. Well, with the Templars here, like I was saying, with them being extremely power-hungry, and, and even so, you can tell that they are all very heavily influenced by the Spaniard. And as of right now, we have no idea who that is. All we know is that he is the leader, he's the one pulling the strings, and he is the center point behind this entire conspiracy to overthrow the assassins and ultimately was the man responsible for the death of Ezio's family. Uh, this conspiracy is actually pretty complicated when you when you really think about it. There's all these outlying people, all the, these these small-time people that you wouldn't have thought would be very uh, part of something this sinister. And yet, as you uncover the truth behind things, 
as you are eliminating each enemy and they give you a little piece of the puzzle, they add more names to your list that, you know, you need to end up dispatching. And this is what ultimately leads you to having to chase them out to Venice. <clears throat> and so it's, hmm, it's really hard to put this in words, especially since I'm trying to limit this to just the first half of the game. But, you know, it, it's, this is like, this right here, this beginning half of, of Assassin's Creed 2 really does do a great job of laying down the groundwork for, you know, the next, for the rest, for this whole game, as well as the two games after it. Like, if you think about it, there wouldn't be more games involving Ezio if it wasn't for this just beginning sequence and the gradual teachings of techniques of learning about these what turns out to be codex pages left by Altair that Ezio brings to Leonardo to decipher. Codex? Did someone say codex? Exactly, right? The codex. We're not the only ones. Is that what we're named after? Quite possibly. That is a hidden secret, guys. Taking influence from Altair and establishing our own codex. Because in this game, there are 30 pages of Altair's codex that you have to collect throughout the entire game. And this is mandatory. This is a mandatory thing that you need to collect because it helps you uh, locate something that happens in the second half of the game. So I guess we could talk a little bit about the codex just because it's something that is kind of s- spread out throughout the whole game. Yeah, plus, I mean, we've we've got multiple pages of it and Leonardo da Vinci is deciphering them for us. Actually, let's talk about Leonardo for a second and then talk about the codex. Yeah, yeah. No, so that, that's actually a really great thing that I feel like they've been implemented in this game is that they're implementing these real people, real historical figures into into this game but they're incorporating them into the story. Like, they're not just some prominent figure that's like, oh, yeah, they're doing this, but, you know, don't worry about that. You're not involved in that. No, you have Leonardo da Vinci in his very early years in his career, and here he is helping you out, building these contraptions for you and and deciphering these codex pages for you so that you learn more about the knowledge that Altair had gained through staring into the apple or being with the apple and learning from its learning its secrets. Now there's only 30 pages in total that are spread out throughout this game, but in these 30 pages you you get new hidden blade designs. You you get a design for a second blade. Uh, you learn more you get more backstory and you get more assassination techniques too like it adds so much story and so much more exactly one gameplay and two it adds more texture to the characters because even though you're not playing as altair even though there's like there's no like flashback to him albeit in in very briefly i guess in, in present day stuff but in like the past stuff like all there is is just talks of him mentions of it but just those alone and and collecting these codex pages and deciphering them you you learn so much more about him and how he decided to handle the creed after dispatching al-mualam 
And I love those moments when you go back to Leonardo and he's so excited. He's like, oh, you have another page for me, my friend. <laughs> I know. He's so happy. Like, I feel like he doesn't know that Ezio is an assassin, but like he just knows that he's doing these things for uh, the sake of his family. But yeah, he's just so excited because he's like, you see that, that desire, that drive to just learn, to take on new things. It's, it's amazing. Like, ooh, another Sudoku puzzle. Basically. <laughs> really, basically what it is. It's like a whole new challenge for him to to undertake. And he just he just wants to soak in all that information. And of course, he's willing to help out Ezio because now at this point, he sees Ezio as, you know, a very, very good friend. And, and at some point, Ezio even tells Leonardo, you know, like, Hey, listen, if I can't trust you with this sort of information, then there's no one on this planet that I can trust. Like, that's how close their friendship becomes. And it's really great. It's really beautiful to really see their their bond, like, develop and grow as you're playing this game. And there's also, there's, there's one particular sequence. I believe it's as... Um, I believe it's as Leonardo is leaving Florence to head to Venice that you give the option, you get the option to hug Leonardo. And I swear to to the people that decide to not hug him and just make it an awkward thing, <laughs> y'all are monsters. <laughs> like I remember, I remember, I like my controller was glitching out and it didn't let me press it. I actually turned off the game before I could auto say so I can go back and give Leonardo his hug because <laughs> he is honestly like the purest bean in that entire game. <laughs> How many times have you have you hugged Leonardo? Oh, I've hugged him at least a dozen times. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I I love their relationship. It's it's so beautiful. And the way they incorporate like in the way they develop the story is just like it's that's not even part of like the real main story of finding your next target, killing him, learning something new, finding out a new name, and then pursuing that next person. No, this is just a nice little thing that as Ezio is getting older, as Ezio is maturing, he he's just developing this great like friendship and this great bond that is invaluable to him, really, because without Leonardo, there's no way Ezio would have been able to do the things that he's been able to do. Yeah. Like we said at the beginning, it's it's those relationships really make the game. Exactly. It's and in the and the people that Ezio befriends along the way from Paola in Florence to his uncle Mario to you know, Caterina Sforza, like these people prove to be invaluable to him on his quest to avenge his family. Yeah, earlier when you said, uh, oh, you just one person was responsible for all of this, I was like, well, technically he had help along the way. <laughs> I mean, yes, I was I was saying more in the sense of he was the one who, like the Spaniard was the one who plotted the conspiracy, who ordered these people to do these things to make the events happen the way they did that ultimately led to their deaths. Like, sure, you have all these people that played their parts and played their roles and did the things that they did to get to where, you know, they die. 
No, but you said earlier that that Ezio like single handedly stopped everybody, and what I'm saying is like he he actually had help along the way. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I see what the you're pow- saying. The power of friendship, <laughs> the power of training. <laughs> I, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's just I I think I said that just simply because while yes he gets help, Ezio is really the only one that's going out and and taking care of these people. He's the one that's going out and killing the targets and seeking the information, but he has people along the way that are teaching him how to gain that information or ga- or teach him how to go about handling a certain target. Yeah. So, I think uh oh, man, there's just so much. This this game really is groundbreaking and uh, the way I want to have this this whole thing split up, really the lot the most the big substance stuff will come in the next part. So mm-hmm. this is like a nice little nice little teaser, nice little slow lead in to all the big stuff that really is what carries the games onwards even long after Ezio. Yeah, I mean at this point there's just so much stuff to find and do and so many people that you've met and it's it's great, but the second half is like, oh so much better i mean <laughs> i mean it builds on the first part obviously and there's just so much payoff later on and i don't know it's it's great it's a great first half it's an even better second half yeah like if you were to think about this in terms of a cake this first part is like the baking process and so like we're just at this point we've put the we've put the cake in the oven and we're letting it bake letting it you know, letting everything just kind of set in there rise no. up a little nope. bit and then the no. second half no. is putting it all together and making this thing into a beautiful masterpiece. No, no, no. I think this is like a slice of cake. You've been eating it and you know, but it's like, it's a pointy slice, you know, and everybody is just like small because you're starting. And then when you get to the end, it's like, there's just more there and it's got more icing on the back too. And not just on the top. So the whole later half of the cake slice is better. That that's what the game is like. (laughs) If you insist on a baking metaphor, on a, a cake metaphor, uh, I think I think mine explains the game better. <laughs> I I don't know. I feel because well, you're enjoying it. You're enjoying every part of this. You're not just like, you know, putting things in motion. But I mean, if you're the if you're a baker, then I mean, the baking part is still also fun. Uh, it's the process of creating a story. But you can't create a story if you don't have the preparation right there. We're already. not creating the story. We're we're eating the cake. It's done. No, but we're, we're enjoying pl- it. But we're playing the story, and so therefore we, in in a way, are creating the story. Because if we don't play the game, how is the story going to be told to us? Please vote for your favorite uh, metaphor <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the GT forums. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I mean, I feel like. For right now, I feel like this is this is a good cutting off point. Unless yeah, you have yeah. anything else you have to add in terms of key characters or the conspiracy or anything else. Just a shout out to the villa because I think it's a character in and of itself. And it's something that is mostly optional. But it was such a fun part of the game for me to play. And and I always love the idea of, you know, upgrading upgrading it and and making it look better and making it work better and it's it's something that you know plays into some of the some of the later games and you know the first game had nothing like that and i really like that oh trust me upgrading the villa is like my probably my favorite part of the in 
entire game <laughs> just because i just love uh, like doing like these like it's like sims but it's not because everything is all set you're just upgrading it and yeah, it unlocks yeah. discounts for you like it's great it's awesome yeah. i love it yeah i know i'm very quick to uh upgrade everything as fast as i can so i'm literally hoarding all of my money <laughs> just so that way i can i can upgrade everything as fast as i can picking pockets left and right because oh, we, we need you to, know it we need to, <laughs> gotta get yeah. those upgrades <laughs> or just killing time by running around either collecting feathers or hunting down codex pages in areas that are accessible to me on the map yeah. just so that way i can accure that income so that i can go back collect it and then immediately spend it all man i don't remember any game before assassin's creed 2 that was such a collectathon you know that had the map full of stuff for you to find and, and collect. Now I take it for granted and it kind of annoys me, you know, if it's, if it's in every game that I play, but back then that felt so new. It was, oh man, loved it. Yeah. And I mean, like it wasn't total overkill. I mean, like the, the codex pages were something that you had to find and there was only 30 of them and a good chunk of them you got just by simply playing the story. And then as you went through and did all the viewpoints, you gradually would unlock their locations anyway. The only real annoying thing is the feathers because there is a hundred of them mm -hmm. and there is no real easy way to find them. They don't appear on your map through Eagle Vision. They have a section for it that you can like it can tell you how many feathers are in a particular city. But to actually go through and find them is a lot different. And it's a big pain in the ass. And I've done it <laughs> twice and I hate it. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> well, that's all I got. Yeah, I think that's all I really got too because, like I said, the second part of this is where we're really going to go all out because a lot of the stuff really doesn't happen until late to end game. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, we're going to conclude today's lesson. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I understand that I did not introduce ourselves in the beginning, and that is my fault. I completely forgot. I was just really excited to start talking about this game because this is what the game that I started playing and that's is what got me into this series in the first place. So I was just, I was all gung-ho about this. I forgive you. <laughs> it won't happen next time, guys. I swear, next time you'll know who we are. But again, thanks for, for joining us today in this lesson. Uh, if you ever want to seek out assistance, feel free to post on our forums at forum.geektherapy.com. And if you want to chat with your fellow initiates, you can do so over on the Discord at geektherapy.com slash Discord. So tune in next week where we will go completely gung-ho into the late and endgame stuff of Assassin's Creed 2 and where we will really have so much to talk about, it's not even going to be funny. So until next time, guys, take care and remember, nothing is true, everything is permitted.